Hey, Jay, I was thinking, I wonder if there's a universe without Wolverine. Well, there are certainly universes where he's dead, Miles. Sure, but I mean one where he never existed at all, in any form. Not the codename, not James Howlett, or Logan, or any variation on him. You'd think there'd have to be at least one. Does there, though? What if he's some kind of universal constant? Wouldn't that require consistency between his multiversal counterparts? They're all over the map. I mean, there's Wolverine, there's Weapon X. Governor General James Howlett is the best one, though. Oh, unquestionably. How do you think he ended up Governor General, anyway? He never really struck me as a political guy. You know, there are actually plenty of universes where Wolverine ends up in positions of political power. Hell, there's even one where he's king of... The vampires? Well, yeah, but also England. What?! I'm Jay Edelin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 291 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, and currently its greatest alternate universe counterpart, The Age of Apocalypse. I remain incredibly excited to be talking about The Age of Apocalypse, but I'm also excited about... Another thing, because this episode is going to come out one day before our sixth podcast anniversary. Whoa, yeah, that's right. We turned six years old on Monday, April 13th. And while we are not going to be able to throw a birthday party anywhere near our actual proper podcast birthday this year, we highly encourage all of you to bake ridiculous cakes and eat them. Yes, cakes are great. Unless you have celiac disease or something, in which case gluten-free cakes are great. That's still cake, but you know, whatever whatever you are into, whatever you feel is appropriate to celebrate. Put on your captain's hat, um, sing a bunch of verses of Dear Mr. Sinister, follow your heart. It'll be great, but yeah, six years. Uh, it's always baffling to me when we hit a milestone like this because, I don't know, six years just feels like a very, very long time, and it is, but uh, this podcast has just sort of like flown by up until this point. It's just been fun. Yeah, it's it, it is really weird thinking of it in real time though. Like there are, there are people who were in high school when we started who are now out of college. Whoa, that is that is bonkers. Time. What even is time, Jay? I don't know. Honestly, I have entirely lost all reasonable understanding of the passage of time recently. Uh, I feel like we should always be giving the dates that we're recording right now just because so much is changing so fast. Um this one is on on March 30th. So, you know, if the world's still around on, on April 13th, happy birthday to us. Indeed. Speaking of time and the past, before we talk about some comics, let's talk about what led up to them. I am so good at segues. Well, you see, Miles, when a company-owned property and work-for-hire contracts love each other very much... <laughs> okay, let's skip a little past that part. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll skip all, all, the, all the tawdry signing and, and pitching and all that stuff. And go straight to the Age of Apocalypse. Now, we started covering the Age of Apocalypse with episode 287. We designed that on purpose as a good jumping on point for the show. If you haven't listened, at least from there, we'd recommend doing that. But in the interest of the large amount of data that we're throwing at you and, you know, the fact that every, every episode's somebody's first, let's go over some of the basics real quick. So, when Professor Xavier was accidentally assassinated in the past by his time-traveling son, a chain of events occurred that led to Apocalypse taking over most of the world and Magneto forming the X-Men. That's where we find ourselves now, not in the familiar main Marvel universe of Earth-616 where Professor Xavier founded the X-Men and Magneto was his arch-nemesis, but in the glam and tattooed alternate present of the Age of Apocalypse. The other big difference that the Age of Apocalypse has from Earth-616 is that in Earth-616, mutants are hated and feared. In Earth-295, the Age of Apocalypse, well, they're still hated and feared by the humans, but uh, mutants pretty much run the world under Apocalypse. They're more justly hated and feared. Exactly. Most of the characters that we know and love and or hate are here in AOA. Some, though, are more familiar than others. 
Logan, the guy you know as Wolverine on 616, is superficially pretty similar to his antecedent. He's still a short, hairy, full of murder, and was experimented on by the Weapon X project. He still joined the X-Men relatively early on, and he's still got way more impressive hair than gravity justifies. However, he's never really developed much past Logan's late silver early bronze age incarnation he's still the guy who calls every girl doll and is generally kind of a raging asshole now some of that has to do with larry hama's dialogue style but i have a feeling we'll be talking about that concept a lot over the course of the episode i mean he's a raging asshole in the other books too oh logan you're a delightful raging asshole somewhat there are some other key differences between 616 and 295 Logan. Codename is a big one. This Logan just goes by Weapon X. He's never been called Wolverine. Also, he and Jean Grey have both left the X-Men by the time this series starts, specifically because Magneto wouldn't authorize a mission to save the captured Jean Grey from Mr. Sinister's breeding pens, and Logan went off to save her on his own. To do so, he had to confront the head of the pens, that being Age of Apocalypse Cyclops, and because comics love irony, Cyclops zapped one of Logan's clawed hands off, and Logan clawed out one of Cyclops' eyes, making him a literal Cyclops. And you, th- you expect the comics in such a dark and serious alternate timeline to not make a lot of jokes about that? You're wrong. After all of that, Logan and Jean went off to do their own thing, which, as we saw in X-Men Alpha, turned out to be learning about Apocalypse's plans to attack human-controlled Europe from the secretly sneaky Mr. Sinister, and taking that information to Europe's Human High Council. Which brings us to Weapon X number 1, Unforgiven Trespasses, written by Larry Hama, with breakdowns by Adam Kubert, finishes by Carl Kiesel, Dan Green, and Chris Warner, and colors by Mike Thomas. Hey, Chris Warner. I work with that guy. He's an editor at Dark Horse these days. He's a good dude. Yeah, it's this again, this is the era where we start seeing a lot of names that we not only recognize, but names that we recognize because they're people we know showing up in these books. <laughs> right. So before we dive into the plot, let's talk appearance a little bit. We talked about Logan and Jean's appearances, um, I think a little bit in our X-Men Chronicles uh, episode, but... I really do love the way that Logan's facial tattoos that maybe he got while he was captured, hard to say, just mimic those spiky stripes that are uh, part of his costume. It's like he started sewing them onto his shirt and just kept going until he realized that he got to his hairline. Oh, past his hairline, because at one point his hair gets all burned off and we see that they extend pretty far back on his scalp. Impressive. What I wonder is whether the costume came first or the facial tattoos. Oh, okay. You're saying he might have been captured and had those uh, spiky line things put on top of his head and just figured you might as well go with it? You might as well have a consistent brand? Well, or he might have gotten the costume, been like, I really dig this motif, this is my thing now, and just, you know, kept running with it. I respect that. What I wonder about in terms of his appearance, though, so we mentioned that this Logan has one hand. Like, he has one normal hand with the snickety claws, and the other one is just a stump, which is capped in this sort of metal cylindrical cap. That's kind of weird, because the Logan that we know in modern continuity can basically grow anything back from any injury. And so it always struck me as weird looking back that here he just doesn't have that hand. Maybe on Earth-295, his healing factor has to work harder because of all of the random crap in the atmosphere? I don't know. Maybe. Or, I mean, honestly, in 1995, his healing factor wasn't nearly as strong as it was written as it is portrayed as being these days. And so maybe if his hand was blown completely off, complete with the adamantium skeleton uh, part of it, like the hand bones being gone, then his hand couldn't fully regenerate. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think I think your explanation is is kind of the most likely one, namely that in 1995 he wasn't written with that super 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 outrageously strong healing factor. Hmm. Hard to say. But um anyway, what happens in this comic? Uh, you know, bunch of guys punching bunch of guys. There's some yelling. Pretty much, but more specifically, Alright, having dropped off Sinister's intelligence with the Human High Council, Logan and Jean are headed back to North America on a somewhat unlikely vehicle. They are riding a sentinel back across the Atlantic Ocean. 
Okay, two things about this. Thing one, I really enjoy that the Sentinels in Earth-295 look a lot more human. Like, they look like giant people wearing robot armor, almost, rather than looking like full-on inhuman robots. And given that humans and mutants are even more opposed in this universe, that kind of fits, that the humans would want to make their robots look as much like themselves as possible. Second thing, they're just riding on the back of the Sentinel. I mean, you could attach, like, a gondola basket, or just have the Sentinel hold a picnic basket. You could put an armored compartment. There could be a pouch that the Sentinel was wearing. There are so many better places for Logan and Jean to be on this Sentinel that's flying at Mach something or other. I would respect this scenario so much more if they'd drawn, like, their cheeks flapping in the wind like a dog with its head out the car window. (laughs) <laughs> that would be way better. It would actually look really appropriate for Logan. Look a little weird for Gene, which would make it even funnier. I mean, it looks super weird on anything alive. That's sort of the point. There is that. So Logan and Gene are aimed at Apocalypse's great seawall. This is a gargantuan and futuristic techno-organic monstrosity whose staff is significantly more baffled and alarmed at the presence of two alpha mutants than they are by the appearance of a giant sentinel. Now, Mutant powers and the way they're classified vary tremendously over times and eras, so if, like me, you look down at that and went, no, no, I know that at least Gene is an Omega-level mutant, repeat to yourself, it's just a show. This is one of those things that is not only inconsistent, but is inconsistent in ways that also intersect with the inevitable, ubiquitous power creep in superhero comics, and so my best answer here is to just shrug and run with it. Mm Mm-hmm. The infinites that are running the seawall don't want to bother Lord Apocalypse because he has a habit of incinerating people, so they just radio in for a mutant alpha of their own to fight these two alphas, and that is everyone's favorite total irredeemable jerk from the Age of Apocalypse, fucking Alex Summers Havoc. Now, he is about as unhappy to be there as everyone else is to see him, and becomes even less happy to be there when the Sentinel shoots its hands off, grabs him, and jams him into a teleporter where an unseen accident leaves him, we learn later, fused at a molecular level with the Sentinel hand. First of all, this scene is hilarious. Like, it's hilarious on the page, like what we see of just the hand shooting off, grabbing him, and shoving him into this thing. Second, literally every way I can picture the outcome is even funnier. I don't know how that didn't completely kill him. Like, Nightcrawler is always so terrified of teleporting into solid matter, and that's kind of what just happened with Havoc. There's a little gag later where uh, Dark Beast is trying to use a bone saw to get the hand out of Havoc, but but that wouldn't work. I mean, I think at that point the goal is to get Havoc out of the hand, but... Well, anyway... They're successful in their mission, which, as it turns out, was to punch a hole into Apocalypse's network of seawalls, because the Human High Council wants to evacuate a bunch of humans from North America to Europe, which is controlled by humans and safer. And now there's a way for their sentinels to actually get through to do so. We're going to learn a lot more about the great human evacuation of North America in Amazing X-Men, but uh, for now, just be aware that it's all thanks to Logan and Jean and a funny, murdery, horrible, gory thing that happened to Havoc. So, on the way back, they're able to join up with this group, which is also largely Sentinel-conveyed, but instead of landing at the designated landing point, no, no, Gene and Logan can't do that. They have to go straight to the Human High Council, which they do by crashing their Sentinel straight fucking into Big Ben. Like, they they just head straight in through the roof. So we saw that Big Ben's clock face was already busted when we saw it in X-Men Alpha. In my personal headcanon, the Human Council was very proud that they were able to completely fix it up like six hours before Logan and Jean crashed their Sentinel into it. It's sort of a, my cabbages, situation. Gotta say, you can take Jean Grey out of X-Factor, but you can't take the X-Factor out of Jean Grey. (laughs) Yeah. So what's the big plan that the Human High Council is talking about? Oh, they're just going to nuke the shit out of North America. Yeah, basically. I mean, North America is almost entirely run by Apocalypse. He's divided it up among his various horsemen. And while there are humans there, A, the Human High Council's trying to get them out, and B, their lives are awful enough that I guess the Council just figures, well, if some of them die, then it's not much worse than the situation they're in right now. This isn't an easy decision for them, and it's not something that they're unanimous on either. The Trasks, those are Bolivar and in this case Moira Trask, uh, 
formerly Moira McTaggart, are all for it, as is Brian Braddock, who's who has financed the Sentinels. The Sentinels. Marco Yoshida is against it, and Emma Frost, who remember is on the Human High Council, thanks to a lobotomy that has removed the psychic part of her brain. Yeah, I don't know how that works either. Remains inscrutable. Oh, the thing with Emma and her brain gets even weirder in the Age of Apocalypse ongoing from a couple decades later. Let's not even worry about that right now, though. I'm I'm entirely down with that plan. Well, while they're all deliberating on things, they are attacked by one of Apocalypse's goons, that being in this case, Magma of the New Mutants. Now, after helpfully demonstrating exactly what we're complaining about when we say the TNA pose, or snapped spine posing, Magma promptly gets thoroughly killed by Wolverine. Um, She also throws around some fire and makes some threats. And I'm so frustrated with this because her design is so good in the Age of Apocalypse. We've talked about it in a previous episode, and it's like, you didn't have to do that. Her design reminds me a lot of the version of Holocaust we saw from Earth-616 in Strife's Strike File, like way before the character ever showed up in any timeline. It's that sort of dark stony exterior with veins of burning red lava or magma i always forget which is which uh kind of running among it it looks really cool so if it's outside of the ground it's technically lava okay so when logan cuts her open does her magma become lava yes okay good no i love her design because it's 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 really scary and it's much more elemental Like, that's my first thought, seeing it. Like, she looks like something just fundamental and primal and of the earth and not human. Yeah, aside from the fact that she's trying to show us her breasts and her butt at the same time, like, it is such a strong visual. It's one of my favorite single pages from probably the whole series. Trying hell, she is succeeding. Something which we can attribute in this case to the fact that she's at least partially, you know, made of lava, but also roll our eyes at extensively because no, 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 no. Well, anyway, what's Apocalypse up to? Well, back at stately Apocalypse Manor, which I remain extremely annoyed is not shaped like a giant A, Apocalypse casually reveals Sinister's treachery and that Apocalypse doesn't really care because he's already on top of it. One thing that I appreciate is that whenever Apocalypse learns that his his side's plans are being opposed, he's like, good, survival of the fittest. If we lose, it means we weren't fit. Um, also, everyone makes keeping an eye out jokes about Cyclops and Wolverine, because obviously they do. Now, speaking of Wolverine, Magma's attack pretty much confirms to the Council that they have to strike now. And Logan is all for this, and Jean is really, really not. And this, in fact, is going to be the disagreement that ultimately drives them apart. As we head into Weapon X number two. Called Fire in the Sky. Written by Larry Hama, penciled by Adam Kubert, inked by Dan Green, colored by Joe Rosas, and Digital Chameleon. And the opening's pretty great. It's Logan wading on to an English beach. Apparently, this English town is where he tracked Jean to after she left in the middle of the night. And I appreciate that because Logan didn't get to see her leave, we, the reader, don't get to see that either. Honestly, in a way, it gives Jean a little more agency, as does the fact that she'll ultimately leave this series of her own volition. We talked a little bit about her just being an accessory to Logan, and I don't know, I think I would I would argue with that. I mean, to be fair, though, she does leave this book for her other potential love interests book, but, but still, I'll take what I can get. Man, I... Jean Grey deserves better. I mean, that's the perpetual, uh, that's the perpetual X-Men status quo right there. Yeah, no, just, just tattoo it on my eyelids or something. Don't Um, do that. I also appreciate how out of place Logan looks, um, with his giant hair and his spandex amid the relatively normally if shabbily dressed refugees, and I also, also appreciate that one of the refugees is carrying a full bag of golf clubs. That guy's got a story, and we never learn it. I mean, he knows what his priorities are. Yeah. Jean is indeed here, and she's helping with the evacuation of North America. I mean, the Human High Council is taking as many humans as possible to Europe on Sentinels. Um, Also, apparently, Sentinels just don't have pockets or compartments because the humans are doing the same thing that Logan and Jean did and just sort of, like, hanging on, which is uh, weird. Well, some of the Sentinels are carrying huge boxes full of people, so there's that at least. That's a slight improvement, but only slight. I'm just saying, if you can make super fancy giant robots, you can give them some goddamn pockets. Wow. 
It's like women's jeans or something. Do you think they have, like, decoy passenger compartments? Probably. Stupid fashion. Now, Gene and Logan are happy to see each other, but they're still arguing. Gene wants to find another way, an alternative to a preemptive nuclear strike, and Logan digs deep into his bag of his best old-timey argument words to contradict her. That's a load of malarkey, Gene. You should be first on the line to push the button on those creeps. You were one of the few who survived the pens. One of the things I love about Larry Hama's version of Logan is how old-timey he sounds, because this is a character that's been around for like a couple hundred years. Of course he would. Also, it's just charming. Malarkey. God, that's such a great word. But there's no time for them to trade various other old-timey barbs, because... Box and Copycat of Apocalypse's Brotherhood of Chaos start killing everyone. We see them a little more in Amazing X-Men, but the point is, they're bad guys. They're bad guys who have 616 antecedents, one of whom is a good guy. Box is Madison Jeffries, who will later become a fairly central X-Line character via X-Club and a number of other titles. And Copycat is, of course, Vanessa, who was pretending to be Domino for a very, very long time in early X-Force. And this bit is one of my favorite parts of the story in this series. So as Copycat and Box just open fire and start slaughtering all of the refugees, this unsurprisingly triggers a flashback in Jean, who saw this level of wholesale slaughter in uh, the breeding pens when she'd been captured. And because she and Logan have a psychic link in Age of Apocalypse the same way that she does with Scott in the main universe, this hits him too. And because it's his book, he narrates that for us. Her silence burns through the air at me like blue lightning. It's something deep and ancient that ain't a word or a thought. It's the whole world turned into blood and fire, and it means kill. That's such a good detail that Jean's flashback triggers Logan's berserker rage. Yeah, like, the way they're handled as a couple, it's definitely got its ups and downs, but that part, I think, is really cool. Well, and it both addresses and raises some really interesting questions about what it would mean to be linked to someone else psychically in terms of, like, lizard brain responses to things like trauma. Totally, yeah. And, I mean, that's one of the things I enjoy about superhero comics is when they really explore how stuff like that would work in, you know, situations that aren't just punching bad guys. Anyway, Logan heads back to the Human High Council Zeppelins, um, tells Jean to do what she has to do after saying some really fucked up shit to her. So this part is weird and interesting because he basically says, hey, you know, when I rescued you from the breeding pens, it seemed for a second like you didn't want to leave, which at face value, yes, that is astonishingly fucked up to say that to a person. But what we find out in the following months, Factor X number three, it's that, no, Jean wasn't in the breeding pens for, you know, uh, breeding. She was just a prisoner of Apocalypse and Mr. Sinister. She was hanging out with Cyclops, and eventually she escaped. But we don't know that at this point. It's still a really fucked up thing to say. It's still, like, absolutely inexcusable. Especially, I mean, part of what Logan's referring to, even the most charitable read, is that he's saying, hey, it seemed like you had a crush on that Cyclops guy, and when that's the most charitable read of a statement is to basically say, yeah, well, you dared to be attracted to somebody besides me. That, that's not great. Like, overall, I will stump for Logan in this series. Eh, see what I did there? See what I did there? Ooh, I mean, I guess he could use a hand, but... <laughs> but yeah, this is, this is Logan at his uh, worst. It's unfortunate. It really, really is. Well, we'll leave that unresolved for now because Logan does indeed head back to Europe to the Zeppelins of the Human High Council. They've moved on from uh, a broken Big Ben to very fancy Zeppelins. And there are quickly attacked by Pierce and his pretty boys. So you may remember Pierce from the main universe. He was originally one of the Lords Cardinal of the Hellfire Club. He's an anti-mutant cyborg jerk, and he ended up leading the Reavers, who were a bunch of anti-mutant cyborgs who were legit scary. Here he calls them the Pretty Boys, I guess after one of the Reavers whose name was Pretty Boy? I don't know. But they're real jerks, and even though they are not mutants, they're working for Apocalypse because I guess they want to be on the winning side. I'd like to think that Age of Apocalypse Pierce had a really beloved parakeet by that name and just named his team after that. <laughs> <laughs> 
after it? I would believe it. So the pretty boy's goal is to take out the Zeppelin that has the guidance system that's going to let all the nukes, you know, do their nukey jobs in North America. And there are just explosions everywhere. And what I really appreciate is that Logan, while trying to stop this, the method he uses to get from one Zeppelin to one far below is to jump out of the Zeppelin specifically through an explosion so that the flames that are part of the explosion will cause an updraft, which will make him fall slower and thus be okay. And also be on fire, but still. This is one of the most Logan things I have ever seen, and I love it infinitely. I do appreciate that he realizes midway through that it's the worst idea ever, and he's actually just going to be on fire for longer because of it. There was a role-playing game where the penalties for being on fire weren't as bad as the penalties for fighting in the dark, so if you were in a dark cave, you should just set yourself on fire to fight. It's a bad plan. Yeah, it's a good plan mechanically. Uh, the art here, I mean, Kubert's art, we we haven't covered a lot of Wolverine, but Adam Kubert's art is just phenomenal. And seeing this burned, hairless Logan in this torn-up costume with most of his flesh gone from his face, it is legit scary. What's also scary are the way the pretty boys are drawn. They're elongated and exaggerated. They're like sort of caricatures of human beings, which honestly fits the Reavers slash pretty boys really well. They actually remind me of kind of a cross between the more traditional Reavers from the 616 and their leader in that continuity is Lady Deathstrike. Yeah, yeah, you're completely right. Just that level of elongation and stretching, it, uh, it's totally Deathstrike. Logan considers briefly giving in to death in his own bad judgment, but something calls him back from the edge. I could have let myself burn bright like Blake's tiger, but I heard a siren call on the Psylink. It was the voice that sings the anthem of my soul, and she was saying goodbye. Okay, you know what, Logan? Blake's tiger is not actually supposed to be on fire. That fire is a metaphor. No, no, don't you remember the poem? Tiger, tiger, literally on fire, in the forest of the night, which is starting to be on fire as well, because the fire is spreading. Uh, anyway, Logan, after this big fight, does go and find Jean. He catches her before she leaves England. She's in a prop jet, which, since it's written by Larry Hama, I assume it's a very, very specific type of prop jet. Uh, about to fly away. And so, of course, Logan got a Logan. He drives his motorcycle off a cliff so he can jump onto the plane to catch her. Fuck's sake, man. If a girl is on a plane trying to get away from you, like, that's the point where you just wave from the shore. Well, he figures that she's heading back to North America to warn everyone about the Human High Council's attack. And he can't let her do that. Her take, though? Then you'll have to stop me, Logan because I could never live with either one of us if I didn't try to stop what's about to happen. Logan, if you've ever truly loved me, make it quick. And there's this great last panel in the bottom right corner of that page of the plane's tail going over the edge of the cliff, implying that, yeah, Logan stabbed her. But on the next page, we see Jean's hands, a close-up of them, pulling up on the stick as the plane takes off and leaves Logan, like, still with his hair growing back in from being on fire, just alone on his hands and knees on the cliffside. I love the pacing and the staging of that, just the uncertainty that you have for a few brief panels before you realize what happened. Also, man, Gina's a hell of a pilot. She is. I mean, I don't know. She spent enough time with the Summerses in 616. Maybe some of it rubbed off. But I love this. I love that Gene and Logan are going to be star-crossed lovers in any universe. In the 616, it's because of Scott and also Good Judgment. And in this universe, it's because of these philosophical differences. Like, that seems almost inherent to them as a romantic pairing. I mean, I think ultimately it's, it's inherent to a lot of romantic pairings in X-Men. But yeah, they're, they're one of the big perpetual might-have-beens. And that takes us to Weapon X number three, the common right of toads and men, which does not feature Toad. No, he will be around later in X-Men, but this issue is written by Larry Hama, penciled by Adam Kubert, inked by Dan Green and Mike Sellers, colored by Joe Rosas, with separations by Digital Chameleon. This issue opens with Logan going to the Age of Apocalypse X-Men's old original base at Wundagore Mountain, and I really appreciate that the mostly full-page uh, image of that we have is identical in layout 
to Magneto looking at Wendigoran at the beginning of X-Men Chronicles number one. But this time it's all broken. It's burned out. Snow is mostly covering it. Like it's such a nice little callback. And Logan reminisces here about Magneto taking him in and saving him from himself, about how he's had some of his happiest and saddest moments uh, at this place. And just this little bit of narration here. I mean, because Hama is just incredible at both narration and dialogue, and he's got Logan's voice down, I think, more than probably anybody ever has, in my, at this very moment, opinion. You really believe that that jerk that showed up in X-Men Chronicles number one could have actually grown into this guy, this very flawed but still much more sympathetic version of Logan. Now, if there's anything that Logan doesn't get to do that we know from 616 and 295, it's walk more than 10 feet without being attacked by a cyborg. And, in fact, here are some more cyborgs. Not Pierce from before, because he got pretty thoroughly blown up, presumably, but a couple of new ones. Uh, These are ones with big metal arms and cigars and short white hair. Yeah, one of them looks just like Cable. And they literally blow him out of his boots with a big laser blast. Like, his boots are sitting there in the snow, smoking, and he's on his back far behind. Does that actually happen in real life? I thought that was only like a Looney Tunes kind of thing. Only in the comic books, Miles. Only in the comic books. Also, Logan's got a pretty good battle cry here. Yeah, he does. No, it's he doesn't. He has a terrible battle cry. And I, I thought it was just something he, he one-off said in a previous issue, but he keeps saying it. So I assume it's his actual official battle cry. Specifically, Eat adamantium and die! I mean, I guess you would if you did, but... Yeah, it's pr- probably very toxic. I mean, it's slowly poisoning Logan. So... These guys are are cyborgs, and they, like Pierce, are specifically altered humans. Um, Logan is really catty about them, and I have some complicated feelings about that. Clearly, he's got at least a foot into cyberpunk, though, because he's familiar with William S. Burroughs, whom he refers to as Billy Burroughs, so that's a thing. Do you think they used to hang out, kind of like how the Shade and, uh, what's-his-face, Oscar Wilde used to hang out in Starman? Can you imagine how quickly Logan would get sick of Jack Kerouac? Oh, God, within seconds. Anyway, fortunately, the person who's actually waiting for him at Wendigore is an old friend. It is Carol Danvers. That's Captain Marvel, in those days Ms. Marvel, of 616, who here is just Carol Danvers. But she's still super badass, and she's still very recognizable. As Logan says, I don't know anyone else who smells like gun oil, C4, and Chanel number 5. So Carol also, I don't know if you noticed this, she has kind of Deadpool-looking facial tattoos and dialogue. Yeah, this doesn't really seem like Carol Danvers' typical vocabulary. Where's your better half, the poissant and pulchritudinous Jean Grey? I mean, I guess Jean Grey is those things. She's strong and, you know, attractive. But it's, 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 it's weird Carol dialogue. In general, and, and and again, I think her facial markings are supposed to evoke Deadpool, or at least very much do in combination with dialogue. Now, Carol is guarding someone whom Logan refers to as G-Dub, and we are clearly supposed to think it's G.W. Bridge, George Washington Bridge, who used to be attached to the Weapon X project and a bunch of other stuff. It's not. It's actually Gateway. I love this version of Gateway so much. Oh, same, same. I sort of think of this as Aleph Gateway, just in, in homage to global frequency. Oh, yeah. So what's what's this version of Gateway's deal? Because in the 616, he's a silent uh, native Australian who can teleport people around and is not a fan of wearing clothes or uh, talking or doing anything but sitting cross-legged. Well, first of all, this Gateway smokes filters. He is plugged into a zillion computers and laptops and TVs, and he is basically serving as he has styled himself as the repository for all of human culture. He's trying to absorb all of it before it goes away. He is completely engrossed in this. Logan can't get his his attention until he actually unplugs Gateway's setup. Um, and he's he's dressed, he's dressed in sort of low-key, scruffy pirate gear again. He smokes, and unlike his 616 counterpart, he's pretty loquacious. 
When Logan explains to Gateway that he wants Gateway to pilot the lead airship in a preemptive nuclear strike against Apocalypse, Gateway responds, No, I'm no bombardier, no mere cog in the war machine. I am the repository of the knowledge of humanity, the living index of every hard-earned scrap of information gleaned in our ascent from mindless savagery. Mine is the catalog of all the fishes in the sea, all the creatures of the earth, all the birds of the... That's no bird. Uh, no, that is in fact more altered humans coming to attack. I do not like the mindless savagery bit in that line, but I do like the concept of this gateway and the ways that his relationship to humanity and um, you know, changes in the Age of Apocalypse. I would have liked to see more underpinning of his own culture within that and more connection to it, which I think could have been done. Yeah, I agree, because there's pretty much none of that here. Like, it's mentioned that some anthropologists took him out of the outback, and that's when he sort of started turning into this new version. And I love the new version, but I agree. It would have been nice to have a bit of a link. Like, honestly, Forge is a character that I think works really well in that regard, because he actively rejects his heritage in many ways, but it's still clearly a part of him. Miles, Forge is busy leading a theater troupe. Well, in this universe. Now, Gateway is is against piloting this mission, but... He finally agrees to at least hear the council out, and he rethinks his stance yet again after Carol sacrifices herself to take out the attacking reefers. And, you know, it it is a damn shame that Carol doesn't get to do more, but she is every bit the badass here that she is in 616. Yeah, she doesn't dive into a fridge. She, like, surfs on the fridge out of an airplane and then blows it up when she runs it into robots. It's pretty great. Yeah, the fridge is where she's been keeping her grenades. That brings us to Weapon X number four, Into the Maelstrom. This is written by Larry Hama, penciled by Adam Kubert, inked by Dan Green, colored by Joe Rosas, and Digital Chameleon. And sure enough, the Human High Council is making their case to Gateway. They want him to use his teleportation powers to be the navigator of their mission of death and destruction. And... Because everyone has incredibly realistic holograms in, like, every superhero comic ever, that's how they make their case. They immerse him in the middle of this wholesale slaughter of humans by infinites. And when that's not enough, Logan holds up a copy of the diary of one of the little girls who gets killed that he specifically had the technicians make out of some kind of, like, hard light holographic projector complete with every page being intact just so he can shove that book into Gateway's face. That is thorough. You know what I love about Gateway's reaction to all of this? What's that? He says, basically, screw you, I'm gonna do it, but I'm not gonna do it for any of those reasons. I'm just gonna do it for Carol. Yeah, Gateway is so his own dude with this. Like, he's... Uh, he's sort of a, I don't know, true neutral character almost. Like, he doesn't really care about anybody else's reasons or justice or anything like that. Now, speaking of characters whose reasoning is difficult to work out, Logan walks and talks through the Bombay with Emma Frost, who is also worried about the way that Brian Braddock is acting, and Logan's having second thoughts of his own as he tells Emma, Gene... Now she's a pistol and a firecracker in a fight, but I know there just ain't no harden in her heart to do the likes of this. No ma'am, no way. I surely hope she still loves me as much as I love her. But I love her so much, you see, that I know her heart. And what I know tells me she'll storm heaven and hell to stop this here hard rain from falling. And Logan's mission, of course, is to drop those bombs directly where Jean Grey is going to be. Also, I love Larry Hama's Logan dialogue. Like, he's always a noir cowboy, but uh, he's like super noir cowboy here. It's wonderful. Now, speaking of badasses, Gateway, meanwhile, is surfing barefoot on top of the airship to navigate. I guess it makes sense he would have navigation powers because he's a mutant teleporter. I'm fine to just go with it because this is such a good splash panel. Like, the wind is blowing his hair and beard back, his brow is furrowed, his jaw is asymmetrically set. Hubert does faces and body language so well right here. And the way he draws Gateway with this, like, extreme foreshortening and with his face being drawn as it is, it almost makes me think of Chris Pacello's art in the best possible way. Ooh, yeah, I can absolutely see that. And remember, uh, is the one who's mostly drawing Gateway at this point back in the 616 in Generation X. That's very true, yeah. But 
Gateway doesn't get much time to sky surf because, hey, it's the pretty boys again. I mean, the Reavers. I mean, the pretty boys. It's Pierce and, well, it turns out, Carol. Because Pierce reassembled what was left of Carol into a new cyborg that he's got cyborg control over through the machine parts. And Carol's real fucked up about this, but she's being forced to try to kill Logan and Gateway. I was going to say, Pierce, this is why no one likes you, but... There are so many reasons that no one likes Pierce. Inside the airships, Brian Braddock, you know, the arms dealer that everyone's been suspicious of, yeah, he punches out Emma because he is indeed a traitor working with the Reavers and with Apocalypse's forces. He's not a deliberate traitor. He's a traitor as a result of of um, control via some kind of bioneural implant. Yeah, it's like he got a chance to choose the Sword of Might or the Amulet of Right or the Brain Implant of Brainwashing, and he chose very badly. Damn it, Brian. Brian does redeem himself at the end, though, as he breaks through that brainwashing and blasts Pierce, but he's already been injured too seriously. He did his best to resist before this, but, uh, didn't work. I couldn't do it, Emma. In the end, I was only... human. Which is especially tragic, because, you know, Captain Britain, it kind of reminds me of all the Don Blake stuff that we're going to talk about later in X-Universe. Except the Don Blake stuff is going to be so much better and more ultimately triumphant. Logan, for his part, is having to do what Logan does, maybe not best, but possibly most frequently, which is fight a former comrade who's now been brainwashed or controlled into fighting him. This is Carol, who's now merged with Vultura, whom, whom Logan killed earlier, and... Logan's not happy about it, but he does have some great narration. White noise roaring. Ozone stinging my nostrils and the taste of copper on my tongue. She rose out of the storm like some exterminating angel of chaos. Plasma blasts ripping in the electric insanity. He's a noir cowboy beat poet. He used to hang out with Burroughs, so that kind of makes sense. Oh, yeah. Now I'm just thinking about that track on Songs in the Key of X where William S. Burroughs recites the lyrics to an R.E.M. song. Fuck me, kitten, you are wild. Yeah. I bet there's a universe where, like, Logan has a vanity album. Oh god, there totally is. I hope it's better than Shatner's. Although, Shatner's were kind of great, just maybe not in the way he intended. Anyway, Pierce, because Pierce is the worst, decides to just kill Carol just for effect, I guess. And I appreciate that as Pierce gets more and more blown up and more and more evil, he looks less and less human. And he mocks Logan because he's also burned Logan's good arm nearly into uselessness. Oh, heaven protect me. He's going to stump me to death. <laughs> and then we get a gloriously gross schluck shrip snicked as Logan does the thing we were waiting for him to do all series. We were? I was. He pops his claws right through the metal cap of his stump because they're still there. They were retracted when his hand got blown off, apparently. And he impales Pierce, and Pierce is dead. So this raises the question, of course, of why didn't Logan do this earlier in the comic if it was such a good, you know, secret move? Because his claws are the sword button, and because we know that this is noir beat poet Cowboy Logan who understands dramatic timing. Now, I want to point out, too, that before dying, while taunting Logan, Pierce also made a Monty Python reference. Like, he literally asked Logan, you know, what are you going to do, bite my nose off? Which I totally buy, because Pierce is absolutely the kind of asshole who thinks it's cool to quote Monty Python at inappropriate moments. He totally is. Man, fuck you, Donald Pierce. So, at this point, between the cyborgs and Apocalypse's forces who know they're there, like, everything is fucked, and this armada is not going to make it, and so Gateway takes what I assume is the 50-foot hemp rope that Logan bought with his starting gold, ties it to his own whirly gig that he uses to open portals, and makes this enormous goddamn portal in the sky big enough for the entire Human High Council nuke-filled armada to teleport through to get to North America. Have you noticed that the Age of Apocalypse hinges almost all of its major thresholds on teleporters? Uh, there's a lot of that going on, yeah. I mean, Blink, Nightcrawler, Gateway, all central roles, Lila Shaney, certainly. Well, and we're gonna have an, at least one upcoming series that's all about a search for another teleporter. Yeah, yeah, there is that. So, that's where 
the series ends with the Human High Council and Logan bringing their nukes to commit genocide in North America. And Logan, pretty mixed on the whole thing. I wish I could say I was happy about this gateway, because in some ways I was hoping we'd get shot down with our payload of death. But if it's in my stars to bring this war to apocalypse, then let's get it on. Because Doomsday is coming. I really don't have anything to add to that. Now, with every episode about the Age of Apocalypse, we've been focusing on a specific aspect of the universe or the books or the publishing line. Today, we're going to talk about characters, how they change, how they don't, and where we think that does and doesn't work. So... With this series, I think we have an example of one of the characters in Age of Apocalypse that is the most similar to their 616 counterpart, that being Logan, and one who's one of the most different, that being Gateway. So let's talk a little about them to start. Um, we'll start out with Logan. What do you think about the fact that he's kind of the same dude in this? He's the same dude dude up to a point and then taken in a very different direction. He's not as fundamentally changed. He clearly has the same background and backstory. And honestly, I'd chalk a lot of that just up to his age. Logan has had a lot more years to form into Logan before the universe is split. And I think part of it behind the scenes is just that he's being written by Larry Hama, who's probably the person who best defined Logan's 90s voice. And so he just sounds so much like we're used to Logan sounding in his own series and all of the ways that that was brought over to the team books that he was in up until he got a skeleton ripped out. Now, in the later sequels, we're going to see him diverge much, much further and much more deliberately, which I actually kind of appreciate, although I'm not a huge fan of those series. Yeah, um, I mean, spoiler, he turns out to be the new big bad after Apocalypse in this universe, basically, in ways that make sense, but at that point, he's almost unrecognizable as the Logan of either universe. Yeah, Apocalypse Seeds will do that to you. Yeah, don't eat those kids. No, no, you definitely want to pick those off of your ice cream sundaes. So, Logan's on one far end of that spectrum. Gateway is on the other, I would say. Yeah, I mean, that's a character who, aside from his appearance and his powers, has pretty much nothing else in common. And the version here, like, I know we're both really big fans of him as much as we wish they'd paid a little bit of attention to his heritage, but he's effectively a new character with a familiar face. Yeah, I think he's effectively a changed take on some of kind of the defining principles of 616 Gateway, those set into a very, very, very different background and upbringing. And I kind of dig that. I mean, the reason his concept is different doesn't really fit Age of Apocalypse. Like, were there seriously anthropologists, like, wandering around in the outback while Apocalypse was taking over the world? That seems weird. No, but if you look at the history of that stuff in Australia... It was going on in places into points that overlapped, and I could definitely see some very specific paternalistic decisions being made more aggressively in light of the uh, the upcoming threat of Apocalypse. That actually makes a whole lot of sense, yeah, that some of the shittier characteristics of humanity would come through when they felt so threatened by an external force. Yeah, I mean, Apocalypse is not going to be the thing that wipes out colonialism and causes all of humanity to band together. Look at the Human High Council. Look at the nations and heritage and backgrounds and, and economic backgrounds that they represent. You know, we're not talking about an even cross-section here. No, we are talking about, for the most part, a bunch of rich jerks. I mean, the one who's least a jerk is probably Mariko Yoshida, and with her dialogue with Logan in this, we didn't really talk much about it in the episode, but it's pretty clear that she hasn't fully gotten out of her father's shadow, and her father was very much one of that crowd. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's Logan and there's Gateway, but there's also Jean Grey, like... I don't know. She's got so many traits that are very much Jean here. And as much as she doesn't get a chance to shine, I think between the version of her that we see here in Weapon X and the version of her that we see in the Factor X series, which is where she goes from here, I feel like that still 
that character still says Jean Grey to me, like quite a great deal. She's incredibly strong-willed. She's empathetic, but she doesn't take any bullshit, even from people that she cares deeply about. I would have liked to see this Jean, and the place where she really felt sort of not Jean to me was in not pushing back. And like she disagrees and she leaves, and that's a powerful statement. But something that's always been pretty fundamental to Jean's characterization in 616, and that I sort of see as central to at least my view of the character is that she doesn't just back down and go along. Like she always challenges. Yeah, no, that that's very true. I know at one point Logan mentioned in his narration that he wonders if Jean actually loves him or if she's just grateful. And maybe if there's a part of her that is just grateful, that's part of why she defers uncharacteristically. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the struggle here. And this is something we've talked about before, is that if you're writing Jean Grey, and if you're writing Jean Grey at that point, I think she's been developed much more deliberately in the last 20 years, um, then what you're working with involves a very large original foundation of extremely slipshot, extremely minimal characterization. That's she very was, true the girl written by Stan Lee in the 60s, of whom there was only one. She had several different hair colors, several different names beginning with J. Oh, there was also Sue. But um, but there was basically the girl whose main personality trait was being the girl and who was defined and who defined herself when she had a chance to do it almost entirely in context of her relationships to the men around her. And how you handle that in context of Jean, whether you decide to just sort of throw that by the wayside and look to a different characterization of her that you've seen, of which there have been many, yeah, is going to vary a lot. But unfortunately, because that set a lot of the precedent for the character, I think it took too long for writers to start really writing her well and with agency and with more personality. Because you know, she went from that to being then the Phoenix, which is this ultimate superpowered cosmic entity. We don't really see her get to be a person in her own right in the comics much until X, uh, until X Factor, I think. And that's actually one of the things I like about later Age of Apocalypse Jean Grey, because she's pretty much the main character of the Age of Apocalypse ongoing that started in 2012. And I think you can really see the the evolution of the character between 1995 and uh, 2012 there. I mean, okay, to be fair, in 616, she'd been dead for a long time. But this is a gene who's much more her own person. And yeah, she has romantic relationships in that ongoing, but she also has her own goals and her own philosophies and her own flaws and her own strengths in a way that really rounds her out as a character. Like, I know we're both mixed on that entire run, but I think her uh, portrayal in that series is one of the stronger aspects of it. Yeah, I can buy that. I really like, um, I have, speaking of universes, I have very mixed feelings about um, the ultimate universe. I am, is, is I think largely a mess. Ultimate Jean Grey is definitely one of the more interesting takes on the character. And she's definitely one of the more morally gray and interesting ones. She is, she's a character who slides I, I would I would say you know firmly into super villainy at a few points, not because she's possessed, but because that's where she goes. Yeah, no, she's great. Jean morally gray. But back in AOA, I mean, okay, so a lot of the characters, it's simple. You take good guys and make them bad, like the Summers brothers, but they're bad in ways to fit their characters. You take bad guys and make them good, like Magneto, who was basic basically mostly good already, and Sabretooth, who just sort of becomes that version of Wolverine. But I really like characters who go in slightly unexpected directions that also seem obvious in retrospect, like Angel being a mm. neutral party running a fancy club for fancy people. Yeah, I love Age of Apocalypse Angel. I think it's one of the character transformations that works best. I also really like all of the Shakespearean acting troupe in X-Men. Like, we have yes. Forge and uh, Toad and Sauron and Mastermind. and Sauron. <laughs> Oh, they're great. Um, but yeah, like these are characters who really don't resemble their 616 counterparts all that much at all. And that's cool because in a world like this, yeah, of course people's histories would be different enough that they wouldn't. And it's just so much fun to see those visually familiar characters doing completely unfamiliar stuff. Yeah. Uh, later on, another set of characters we're going to get to are the the ones of Generation Next. 
And the ones in there who I think are most profoundly altered are, are Colossus and Shadowcat, who are both very, very different from what we see in the 616. I think Colossus is more reflective of the darkest versions of the character that we've seen there. Yeah, because we know that when Colossus experiences enough trauma, since most of the early 90s were dedicated to just fucking him over as much as possible, he gets dark. And so to see him so dark in the Age of Apocalypse, to see him just uh, so indifferent to the suffering of so many people, like, that kind of fits. I agree. And honestly, Kitty Pride's got a mean streak. So a traumatized Kitty Pride probably would be as cruel as the Age of Apocalypse Kitty Pride. Now, the Age of Apocalypse is a complex place, as is the 616, as is the Marvel Universe in general, and so, to no one's surprise, you've got questions. White Fat Noodle asks on Tumblr, Hi, Jay and Miles. Hi. Do we ever get any textual indication as to when the broader human population became aware of the existence of and began forming prejudices against mutants in 616? So, yes. Um, as far as when humanity became aware of mutants, I don't know that there's a specific event or date associated with that. Like, in early Silver Age X-Men, you get the idea that people are starting to hear about mutants here and there. The X-Men are part of that. Magneto is part of that. But it's still a pretty new idea. But in 1965's X-Men number 14... There is one person pretty much individually responsible for starting anti-mutant hysteria, and that is a character who we see in this miniseries, albeit without his trademark uh, natty little mustache, Bolivar Trask. I feel like we should just do one of my favorite over-the-top Trask bits of Stanley written dialogue here, Jay. Would you do the honors? We've been so busy worrying about Cold Wars, Hot Wars, Atom Wars, and the like that we've overlooked the greatest menace of all. Mutants walk among us, hidden, unknown, waiting for their moment to strike. They are mankind's most deadly enemy. For only they have the actual power to conquer the human race. Even as we speak, they are out there, scheming, plotting, planning, thinking we don't suspect. But there is still time to smash them, if we strike now. You know, I'm overall not that big of a fan of early Silver Age X-Men, but man, Stanley's dialogue is fun. So, we get a great look at this from a more human perspective in Marvel's number two, that's the Kurt Busiek Alex Ross series, which if you haven't read it, highly recommend it. And also, Jay, your Cyclops comic is going to sort of tie into that that series. Yeah, it's, it's technically in that universe, I think. Yes. Um... And yeah, there's this one page where you see a newspaper with an artist's rendition of what Trask is describing, and it's like this, uh, it looks almost like the leader from Hulk, like this sort of alien-looking dude wearing a striped shirt, uh, cracking a whip at a bunch of humans who are clearly uh, slaves of the mutant population. And one of the little details I really appreciate about Grant Morrison's run of New X-Men is that the outfits that Quentin Quire has his kids wear when they start a riot at Xavier's, Is uh, those outfits are based on what the hypothetical mutant is wearing on that newspaper uh, front page. Yep. Fan mail writer emailed us to ask, Hi, so I've recently started playing D&D with my friends, and I was just wondering what alignment Wolverine would be. I was thinking chaotic good. Your thoughts? And one not X-Men related question, what kind of D&D characters do you guys play or have played? Are any questions really not X-Men related when you get down to it? <laughs> Alright, so... I think that Wolverine's alignment depends very, very heavily on the writer and the run. And that's the thing, any long-lived or well-developed character is going to straddle alignments like most actual people do. Breaking it down, though, so Wolverine is usually not lawful, but I'm kind of on the fence between neutral and chaotic. Again, that depends on on writers. Ultimately, though, I think he's often a default chaotic neutral character who wants to be good. I would agree, yeah, especially when he starts out in X-Men when he first joins the team. And I think by the present day, I'd be I'd be comfortable calling him chaotic good. I think at times he's even been neutral good when he's trying to be a mentor figure to another more chaotic character. Like, I think he's more neutral good when he relates to Laura Kinney, for instance. In the Jason Aaron Wolverine and the X-Men series, he is trying really hard to be lawful good and not doing a very good job at it. 
I can think of two lawful versions of Logan from alternate universes. I can think of a lawful good one and a lawful evil one. Jay, do you have a guess as to who either of those might be? I have some ideas, but I want to hear. I want to. I, I want to hear your opinions untainted. Okay, so the less fun one, the lawful evil one, is the one we mentioned earlier, which is Logan way later in the Age of Apocalypse timeline, when he becomes the new Apocalypse, kind of. But the lawful good one, I'll give you a hint, it's maybe my favorite alternate universe version of Logan in any comic. Is it the Logan who wants to have pie? No, no, that one's pretty great too. Uh... It's, um, he's got adamantine Medal of the Gods on his skeleton. Oh, no, 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 Miles. That is not a lawful Logan. That Logan, in fact, specifically has pursued a forbidden romance and been outcast from his society. That's not lawful, buddy. I think it totally works. I mean, just because it's not like the law law, but he's got a very strict moral code. Uh, He's basically Logan if Logan was a paladin. This is Governor General James Howlett from Greg Pak's delightful Extreme X-Men run. He ran Canada. He's got adamantine, the Medal of the Gods, and his skeleton, and he's married to Hercules. No, see, I, I hands down think that that Logan is neutral good. Okay, well, I could see either I think way. He's, I think he's ex-lawful good. That may be true. It may just be that I'm a defender of the lawful good alignment, and I feel I want to see it in more places. I don't know. Uh, What about the second part of the question? Uh, D&D characters that we tend to play. So I like the chaos factor and the challenge of choosing a character based on some combination of chance and party, party necessity and to fill in gaps. I like sort of ending up with whatever I'm stuck with and then shaping it to be a character who's as little like me as possible. I've seen you do that many, many times. I still remember the Deadlands game we very briefly played where you just took every single flaw you could find. Oh, that was fun. I do have a type in role-playing games, and it's a type I often initially try not to play but always fall into. Basically, I, as a player, can't shut up, and so I invariably become a very social character, and often the leader of the party, even if my character has no idea what they're doing. Next time I play a character, I have vowed I'm not going to do that. We'll we'll see how that goes. I'm trying to think of the D&D character I've had the most fun playing, and I keep on I, ending up with characters I've played in like half in, in Pathfinder or Warhammer instead, too, cause just because we've jumped systems so much. I think that counts. I mean... My favorite, the one I'd much, I'd, I'd most like to, to go back to, um, was the sorcerer in in Pathfinder, who I statted up so that she was more credible when she was lying than when she was telling the truth. <laughs> and there was there she had like significant backstory reasons for this, but it was an incredibly fun, like it, it was one of those really fun intersections of role playing and game mechanics. If I had to pick a favorite character, I might say a character named Grace from a game called Hellsend, who is, I mean, it would be an entire podcast episode to explain her, but uh, she was a time traveler and got in fights, so there you go. See, you like characters who are high drama and centered to the overarching story with an S, and I like characters who are interesting and fun to play. Both legit. You know what's also legit? Our listeners, because we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and they help us do what we do. And certain levels of that support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. It is time for the Angry Claremontian Narrator. (sighs) Look at you, Katie Pride. Standing here, bold as brass, courting, no, requesting the disdain you've seen wither so many others. Did you really expect everything that's passed between us over the years to just crumble away? That that kind of history could be shoved blithely aside in favor of comedic disparagement? Oh, Katie, it's too late to change your mind, but I think we both know you should have gone with the supervillain, thanks which this week come from none other than Altered Human, Pierce. I freaking love being a murderous techno-organic cyborg under Lord Apocalypse's rule. 
If IKEA existed in Earth-295, I'd fit right in. I am a modular robot man. Human parts, machine parts, other cyborg parts, cram them all on. But why should we Reavers, I mean, uh, pretty boys, have all the fun? Let's take Jamie Henthorne's left half and cyber-stitch it onto Rhett DuPont Vecchio's right half. And then give the two of them, I don't know, toasters for hands or something. And then we can weld Jamie's right half onto this very specifically chosen model of airplane and Rhett's left half onto this broken sentinel. I could do this all day. It's like Legos, but people! And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, which is also like Legos but with people, is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we're heading over to the baddies for some quality time with the worst Summers Brothers. They're still better than Vulcan, though. You're not wrong.